Hey, welcome to Access. John here. If you haven't already, be sure to download the free FBC Rungi Church app on iTunes or Google Play for sermons, announcements, and important updates regarding the church. Do you avoid evangelism like the plague? I'll admit, I have too. This is part two of a four-part series called Everyday Evangelism, where we're going to talk about how if you think evangelism is a negative experience, it's probably because you don't have a clear picture of what it actually is. This message is entitled, Living in 3D. What do you think of when you hear the word evangelism? Do you think of a guy preaching on a busy street corner with a sign around his neck that says repent? Do you think of a person that goes door to door handing out tracts? Do you think of a giant billboard with a message that says Jesus saves on it? Do you think of one individual talking to another person, walking them through the Roman road? Well, whatever you think when you hear the word of evangelism, it is important. And it's mostly important for two reasons, because number one, if you were to evangelize, that's probably how you would try to do it. And number two, how you think of evangelism can hinder any ambitions to get out there and actually do it yourself. And because it's so important to get a correct view of evangelism, that's what I want to try to do today. I want to show you that evangelism is something that you can do. It is something within your skill set. It is something that matches your personality, even if it isn't your spiritual gift. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave, or through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, because Christ has redeemed us, because uh, through Christ we have been reconciled with God, we now have that ministry to help others find Christ and be reconciled with God. So every single believer has been called, equipped, and commanded to share the gospel. So the excuse that it might not necessarily be our gift isn't a very good one. But then again, it could be true. You might not have the gift of evangelism. But did you know that the gift of evangelism in the New Testament, it wasn't just a gift, that it was actually a station within the early church? Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and he who gave, he was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, let me ask you a question. I want to ask you a few questions about this because this passage of scripture, it kind of challenges our idea of what the spiritual gift of evangelism is. Why would we need evangelists inside the church, building up the church from the inside? What, what would an evangelist do to prepare God's people for works of service? What would an evangelist do to build up the church? And we have to see from this passage that, that what we think of when we think of evangelists it's generally somebody that shares the gospel with an unbeliever. Maybe they go and preach on a street corner. Maybe they hand out tracts. Maybe they just have individual conversations with somebody about Christ. But that's not actually a biblical picture of an evangelist. When we think evangelist, we think of someone who is outwardly focused. But when you bring in other parts of Scripture, it shows us that everybody should be doing that. 
Every single follower of Christ should be sharing their faith, not just people with the gift of evangelism. And I'm using air quotes, evangelism. What did an evangelist actually do? Well, that's a good question. I believe that these verses and other passages teach us that someone who is gifted, spiritually gifted with the gift of evangelism, is someone who not only preaches to believers, but he's someone who he or she is someone who trains them on how to share their faith. So an evangelist uh, is, is focused on training and helping equip people on how to share their faith. See, that makes sense because if they're, if they're inside the church and trying to build up the church, well, then an evangelist isn't somebody that's out on a street corner. It's somebody that's, that's inside the Sunday school classroom. It's somebody who's inside the church, maybe delivering a sermon. Maybe it's equipping someone on how to share their faith. But it's not what we typically think of when we think evangelist. So even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, it doesn't excuse you from talking to people about God because that's not what evangelism, uh, the gift of evangelism is, sharing your faith. Everybody's supposed to be doing that. I want you to keep in mind, though, that Moses had several excuses as to why he couldn't obey God whenever God told him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But as he started going down the list of all the reasons why he couldn't go, you know, I don't speak very good and, um, you know, I, I just... I wouldn't know what to say, who would send me, you know, I, people don't, about whose authority, you know, and, and he gets down to the to the root, God God quizzes him down, and he gets down to the root of why he he can't go, and, and the reason why, he says, is because I just don't want to, so send somebody else, and that didn't make the Lord very happy, <laughs> the Lord wasn't very happy with that, and so he told Moses, after he corrected him a little bit. He told Moses that his brother-in-law was already on his way and that he'd meet him. So Aaron uh, was sent to be Moses's speaker. Since Moses couldn't just obey God, God says, okay, Aaron's on his way. And I want you to know this because I think it's important. Aaron was a hindrance to Moses's ministry for the rest of his life. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, who was it that was on the ground trying to give this idea of how we should worship a golden calf? It was Aaron. When Moses had problems with divisions within the camp regarding who he was married to, who were the ringleaders causing these problems? Miriam and Aaron. When Moses was frustrated that he struck the rock, he was so frustrated he struck the rock and he took credit. People are saying, well, he didn't get to go in the promised land because he struck, struck the rock instead of speaking to it. No, that's part of it. The other part is, he says, must I bring water from this rock? He's very frustrated at these people. Well, who was it that riled him up? Aaron. You see, Aaron was a hindrance to his ministry. And the only point I'm trying to make here is, is that when you disobey God, there are consequences. Every time you disobey God, there will be a consequence. And sometimes those consequences follow us around for the rest of our life. So not evangelizing because, oh, well, I'm just not spiritually gifted. Listen, that's an, ex an excuse. And the reality is, you just don't want to go. And I would encourage you, as I'm, I need encouragement, that we need to go and we need to obey the Lord, especially when he tells us to share our faith. Well, what does biblical evangelism look like? Well, first off, we talked about last week how it's, it's not a, a, an event, it's a process. And I think what, what we commonly experience whenever we do this 
what we try what we try to do a lot of times is we squish down the process into an event and we try to get i don't know 5 years worth of conversations in in 5 minutes and and it just it doesn't work that way it's not effective um, and, 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 and it loses its power. So what we have to understand is that it is a process, not an event. This should be made abundantly clear in 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul gives us an inside look on how he shared the gospel with the people in Thessalonica. Now, I want to read this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to come back through, and we're going to, we're going to look at it individual. Like There's parts I want to, I want to highlight. Um, he says in, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians Verse 1, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not, was not from error or impure motives, nor were we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak to you as men approved from God, by God, and entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put a mask on to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. In verse 8, he says, We loved you so much, that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. So there's several things I want to point out in this passage of Scripture, and then we're just going to get into some practical application here. So first off, Paul says that his time in Thessalonica, it was not a failure. In, in our analogy last week, we were presented with, the, I, I, I talked about an analogy where the gospel is kind of like, a person running down the field with a football in strong opposition. You're on a team. You know, I talked about that. Go back and catch that message if you hadn't. Um, it, it's clear that the main goal uh, uh, with people is to lead them across the line of conversion, the, uh, the the touchdown line. We want to win them to the faith. But if that's all you focus on with people, if all you focus on is scoring the touchdown, you're going to grow discouraged. Why? Because you won't score a touchdown with every single person. Thus, Paul reminds us, in his time in Thessalonica, it was not a failure. It doesn't doesn't say this, but do you think Paul made converts out of every single person he preached to in Thessalonica? Do do you think he made converts out of a lot of them? I'm going to guess that, that, you know, he says that he ran into heavy opposition. The answer is no. He didn't win them all, and and he didn't win a lot. Paul probably had very few turn turn, to the Lord in faith. But if you spend your whole life ministering to people and you only win one person to the Lord, if you only get to score one touchdown in your whole life, wouldn't it be worth it? Because as you run into the end zone with that person or the game is over, they're really going to thank you. <laughs> you know, you get to celebrate with them afterwards. And I, I'm certain the Apostle Paul would, would consider that a success. In fact, he says it wasn't a failure. Now, practically speaking, if you won one person to the Lord every six months, and that person also won a person to the Lord after six months, and so on and so forth, that the next person won, and you continued that pattern for 20 years. One person 
for every six months. One person every six months who won another person to Christ. And you kept winning people to Christ for six months. If you follow that pattern for 20 years, you would be responsible for reaching over a million people for Christ. So even though you only made one convert, if you hadn't made that one convert or in, in six months, well, I only got one in six months. Well, that's I've talked to hundreds of people about Christ, but I only got one. But every six months that happens, one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16, 32, 64, 120, 128. It, it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And if you hadn't ministered to that one, well then, you probably wouldn't have reached a million people. Even if you only made one convert is a failure. Don't believe that. Don't believe that because everything, everything is worth it if you can just get one. One person to put their eyes on Christ. Also notice that Paul approaches evangelism in a special way. He says that he doesn't try to trick anyone to come in, you know, and 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 he doesn't he doesn't try to use flattery or cover up greed with a mask of false humility, nor was he looking for praise from men. Now the sad reality is is that a lot of times whenever people encounter evangelism today, it's a scripted dialogue. Because we Christians are, are taught a scripted dialogue. Excuse me, sir, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? Um yeah, the morgue, right? Well, this is our attempt to squeeze a process down into an event. And it loses its effectiveness because we don't know anything about the person that we're trying to win to Christ. Nor do we really want to know. We just want to make the sale and move on to the next potential customer. But that was not how Paul practiced sharing the gospel. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, On the contrary, we speak to you as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Now imagine just for a second that I bring you a penny and I ask you to take it to a safety deposit box that I have at the bank. Would you do it for me? What if you didn't know me very well and I came up and asked you to do that? I'm like, hey, you're my only hope. I need you to take this penny to my safety deposit box. Here's the key. Please take it there. Well, if you didn't know me very well, you'd probably think that I'm crazy, right? Why? Because it's just a penny and the face value is only worth one cent. We see pennies on the ground all the time when we pass them by because they're not worth our time to bend over and pick up. But what if I told you that that was a penny that was unlike any other penny and that it had a major difference and I asked you to deliver it for me? The particular penny I handed you is a 1942 wheat penny that doesn't have a mint mark on it which brings it to an estimated value of over $100,000. If you knew how valuable this penny was and that I entrusted it to you to deliver, wouldn't that mean something to you? If you did that to me, I would feel honored that you would entrust me with such a huge responsibility. If I knew that you probably would never catch me, <laughs> I'd probably accidentally lose it. Seriously, just so you know, I try to have integrity with people, but don't trust me with anything because uh, nothing valuable because I probably will break it or I probably will lose it. Um, you know, my wife doesn't trust me with money, so you shouldn't either. Um, <laughs> you need to know that there are a lot of messages out there and people advocate for all sort of sorts of things like save the trees, save the whales, save the date. But you need to know that the message that we've been given is unlike any other. 
It is more valuable than any other message because it has the power to not only change a person's life, to bring them joy, peace, hope, love, but it has the power to change where they will spend eternity. It's more valuable than all the other messages combined, and it has been entrusted to you. The question is, will you actually be trustworthy with it and deliver it as you have been commanded? In verse 8, he says, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a complete stranger tell you that they love you? That's pretty weird, right? I once... um, Oh, this is terrible. But I I had a girl ask my dad if I would go out on a date with her. And let me tell you something. This is not the kind of girl that I would date. I don't want to be shallow and be ugly, but she just wasn't my type. Let's just put it that way. And I agreed to go because my dad asked me. And it's the way my dad asked me. And I was like, you know what, Dad? I understand. I'll go. But I don't want to go, but I'll go. Well... Before the night was over, she told me how much she loved me. And the song, that we went to a dance, and, and she, I, I agreed to dance one dance with her because I was there with her. I didn't want to be. But the song that came on was, I Knew I Loved You Before I Met You by Savage Garden. And I, I just wanted to blow my brains out because I was so miserable. It, it just, it's so weird. Why would, why would somebody say that, you know, I love you? You don't even know me. You don't even know me. That's weird, right? Well, it turns out that Christians do it all the time. Do you know how many Christians, uh, you know, just just people, and this is a, in a brotherly love kind of way. I understand that. But they, how many Christians, I don't even, I just met them and they're saying, I love you, brother. What? You don't even know me. You don't even know me. How could you say that? Now, I think, you know, they think to themselves, well, I know that God loves you, and I love God, so I love you too. Well, that might be true, but, you know, God loves snakes enough to create them, and I don't love snakes. I hate snakes. Uh, this kind of us, you know, when we express our love in a superficial way, I mean, that is, it's so dumb. It's dumb because it doesn't mean anything. But see, we've been brainwashed to believe that that's the way that it should be done because we squeeze the process down to an event. You know, have you ever heard, let me ask you, have you ever heard somebody give a testimony like this? Well, I was living my life in sin, running away from God, and I saw a billboard on the side of the road that said, Jesus loves you. And I just stopped my car and I just dedicated my life right right then and there. And I've been a dedicated follower ever since. You know, that might happen somewhere. Somebody somewhere might have had that testimony, but I've never heard it. And, and matter of fact, if you hear somebody that has that kind of testimony, would you send them my way? Because I'd really like to talk to them. I, I just, that's not, I know this is ugly. I just don't think that is effective evangelism. It's a great reminder. Jesus loves you. It's a great reminder. You need to know that. But I just, that, that's, that's not evangelism. That's squeezing a process down to an event. And it, and it's superficial, and it kind of even undermines. It undermines what love really is. It can. Not not always, but it can. It, it's like, it's like if you're the type of person where you had the experience that I did, where a woman or a girl tells you that she loves you and you don't even know her, it's like, you know, somebody else's. Well, somebody else's love it. Yeah, yeah, I've experienced that before. 
<laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Paul never intended to spend 10 minutes with somebody. And when he said he loved somebody, it wasn't, oh, God bless you, I love you, brother. We just met. It was, I've spent my life with these people. Because he wasn't just there to spend 10 minutes. He was there to spend his life with them. And, and because he legitimately had a love for these people, it was only natural to share the gospel with them. Why? Because he genuinely cared about them. It was a pleasant experience for both parties because he genuinely cared about them. Because I love you so much, I have to share this with you because I care about where you're going to go. And we have to be intentional about the process, about building up relationships with people. What is it that God wants the most? Think about that. Does he want your money? No. Does he want, what does he want the most? Does he, does he want, does he want your attention? Okay. But what does he want the most? He wants a relationship with you. So shouldn't it make sense that since God is all about relationship, that we should be all about relationship too? That God created us for relationship, a relationship with him, a relationship with others, a relationship within ourselves, a relationship with the rest of creation. We have to be intentional about the process and stop trying to squeeze it down to an event. Bill Heibel talks about this in his book, Just Walk Across the Room, and he explains the process of evangelism uh, as what he calls living in 3D. Um, step one is to, to, to develop friends. Step two is to discover their stories. And step three is to discern the next steps. So if you were to develop a friendship, uh, step one, develop friendships, that doesn't mean that you wait until you have a great relationship with them until you share the Lord. You start talking about God. In fact, he, he says in a different book that he wrote, the longer that you wait uh, with someone to talk about God, the more difficult it becomes in that relationship because now you're afraid of destroying that relationship, which can, has, and could possibly happen. I think that's why it's so important to gauge where people are in your conversations, whether they're at a negative 10 or whether they're at a negative 4. The conversations that you can have will be different wherever they are. And it's also important to be godly in our relationships, to express godly love, to express godly encouragement, godly support, godly concern for other people. Who wouldn't want a friend like that? Someone who genuinely loved them, encouraged them, gave them great moral support, and shared genuine concern. Do you know the two things that influence you most in the world are what you read and who you spend time with? What you read and who you're friends with. Those are the two things that influence you most. So instead of always thinking that you have to walk down the Roman road with someone or, you know, here's a track, brother, I love you. Maybe it's just important to develop relationships. It's just as important as developing that relationship with them, that friendship, as it is sharing the gospel with them. Don't always be focused on the sale, the score, the touchdown. Learn to care about people. God does. Step two, discover their stories. How can you be an effective witness with someone when you don't even know anything about them and you don't care to? There's an old saying that says people don't know how much you care or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, I think we have to know 
things about people before we can be an effective witness with them. And the reason why is because you can't have a cookie-cutter approach to evangelism. People are different places in their lives. They're complicated, unique individuals. They might be on a different place at the scale of conversion. So, you know, whether whether you know, we go down the Roman road or whatever, it really has to, we have to develop a relationship with them and we have to learn how to listen to them. And a good way to understand this is to remember that we want people to be filled with the Spirit. And you can't be filled with the Spirit until you're empty. You can't be empty until you unload. (laughs) And so I know this is kind of scary. We have to learn to listen to people and look for when they're and listen for when they're empty. You see, for some people this takes hours, sometimes it takes days, some people it takes weeks, some people they just never shut up. And and, and it's not that you never have to give input. We just need to learn how to follow what James said in James 1:19. Everyone should be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. Do you know what kind of what kind of evangelism never offends anyone? <laughs> If we think about it as a process and not an event, if we have patience instead of impatience with people, the kind of evangelism that doesn't offend anyone is when you just flat out ask them if they will talk about them. Tell, tell me about your story. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Why do you do that? Just ask them. Everybody loves, just about everybody loves to talk about themselves. So ask them. Ask them about themselves. Learn their stories. And he says step three is discern the next steps. Not deliver the one-two punch, but discern the next steps. In other words, you have to learn to listen for the Holy Spirit to guide you in your conversations. I've had times where God's told me to speak. The Holy Spirit has told me it's time to speak. And I've had times when the Holy Spirit says it's time to shut your mouth. Sometimes he does this. I like what Andy Stanley says about this. Uh, Andy Stanley explains this this process a little bit whenever he says he and his wife are out in public. See, he, he legitimately believes that their church is where people need to be because their church it has helped thousands of people make better choices, live with fewer regrets, and to have happier lives. And, and he legitimately believes that people should be there. But that doesn't mean that he goes up to every single person. Hey, you coming to church? Hey, you coming to church? Hey, you coming to church? No, he develops those friendships and he listens to people. And then he, he experiences what he calls every once in a while, he calls them trigger words. Um, if, if He says if, if somebody is new to town, if somebody is lonely, if somebody is broken in some sort of way, if they have broken relationships, and, or, or if they're just flat out frustrated about something, that's how he knows that he needs to invite them to church or he needs to talk to them about God. So in other words, he doesn't shove church and Christianity on people and force them to listen because he can talk louder than they can. He only invites people to church or talks to them about God when he believes Jesus and the church can legitimately help them. Yeah, the church and Jesus can legitimately help anybody, but you have to know how it can help. And I believe people need, need Christ in their life. That's just a reality. But mostly because I have experienced the difference in my life living without Christ to, to living with Christ. And, and I won't know how church and Jesus can actually help someone if I never develop friendships with them, I never listen to them, and I never listen for the Holy Spirit's direction. Listen, evangelism doesn't have to be negative. 
Evangelism doesn't have to be a horrible experience for you where your stomach's in knots and you're scared to death. I think it's that way when we try to squeeze it down into an event instead of a process. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with your personality. It doesn't really have anything to do with your skill set or what your spiritual gift or gifts are. It has everything to do with who God has placed around you and the relationships that you already have. Maybe you will go and meet someone new. That probably will happen, but you can evangelize to the people that you already know. It has everything to do with how much you love others because Paul said that he loved them so much he was delighted to share the gospel with him. He wasn't just that bold guy that got out and always did stuff that he hated. No, he said, I loved it. I had a great time sharing the gospel with him because I love to talk about God because God is awesome in my life. And I just want to share that. But we have to learn how to listen to people first, develop those friendships, and then discern the next steps. I want people to know God like I do. I want to know God better than I do now. And the best way to share our faith is through a relationship, not in a five-minute guided conversation. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit's direction. And if we're paying attention and we're surrendered to the Lord, the Holy Spirit will guide us in how we can evangelize. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that the Lord blessed you through this message and that He spoke to you and that you have a clear direction for your life. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. And if you have any questions or comments about today's message, please feel free to email us at fbcrungi at gmail.com. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.